know I said I was going dark for a few months, but, you know, a funny thing happened. And by funny thing, I mean, you know, a global pandemic happened. I don't usually like to timestamp my podcast because I don't want you to feel disconnected in case you're, you know, listening from a different time and space. But in this case, I'm on day four of shelter in place, or as Dr. Habib Sadeghi says, self-cocooning, which I much prefer. And you know what? Things are really hard right now. They're really scary right now. Life as we know it has changed in a matter of weeks, and what we need right now is guidance and leadership. So instead of me complaining about the lack of leadership right now, I was like, wait a minute, I'm a leader, and I know lots of smart leaders too. So my guest today is the amazing Dr. Adam Dorsey. Adam is a licensed psychologist and executive coach in private practice in San Jose, California. He specializes in assisting high-achieving adults with relationship issues, stress reduction, work-related issues, anxiety, and just getting happier. In 2016, he gave a very well-watched TEDx talk about men and emotions. He just he does a ton of cool stuff, but I'm not going to get into that. Just suffice to say, he's been on my podcast before, and he's a genius. We covered a lot of ground in this conversation, from how to find purpose when suddenly there is no work to be done and nowhere to go, how to deal with overwhelm, how to support our children through this time of self-quarantine, tips for extroverts working in isolation for maybe the first time ever, and how to keep intimacy alive with a spouse despite being, you know, in the trenches of keeping a household from losing its shit. I cried twice during this conversation, and had I not been recording, that number probably would have been higher. But this will lift you up, give you hope, and most of all, give you action to take in the midst of unprecedented uncertainty. Enjoy. I just want to start by saying two things. One, holy shit. Right. And two, people are blowing up my Instagram feed with questions for you. So what I thought we could do is I would love to just like human to human acknowledge how unprecedented and crazy this is, but I want to know as a therapist, like what's it like for you right now? Yeah, it's really a lot of things simultaneously. I feel really grateful that I'm able to attend to my people. I'm feeling a lot of hope, a lot of sadness, and really picking up on people's resilience and coping strategies. Different people have been responding to this crisis in just, as you can imagine, very, very different ways. Some people future trip and catastrophize, right? Yeah. And some people are able to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to see what opportunities exist here. And one of the things that I've been looking at is this is not the opportunity that we want, but it's the opportunity that we have. Oh, that is so good. That is so good. And this, this crisis known as COVID can serve as fertilizer to grow something. It could be us exhuming something that we used to do, but haven't done in some years. But we know like that dusty guitar that we yes, need to pick up yes. or that paintbrush that we haven't used for some time, or it could mean reaching out to friends that we haven't been in touch with for some time. Yep. Or it could be doing something entirely new, creating new family traditions. One of my favorite TV shows is This Is Us. And there's a show, there's this episode where the, the family ends up in a snowstorm or somehow at a crummy motel on Thanksgiving Eve or Thanksgiving. The father ends up buying some Oscar Mayer wieners because it's all they have. And he, he, he roasts them on a, on, a, on a heater within the room. And they watch the only VHS video available to him, which is Police Academy 2. And <laughs> every, year, every year moving forward, that becomes the video that the family watches. So oh there are God. opportunities for new traditions, whether it's within a context of a family or with the context of a friend-to-friend. Yeah. Such as, let's say, a lot of people who are alone right now, which is oh, really hard for a family, it's imperative that they reach out to people and create new traditions. Perhaps Tuesdays, you may have heard of the book, Tuesdays with Maury. It might yeah. be Tuesday yeah. with Aaron and Bronwyn, where every, yes. every Tuesday night at 8 p.m., we talk for an hour, preferably via a video medium because we need That's the it. face-to-face contact. But it could even be just by phone Text is not sufficient. Social media, not sufficient. Loneliness has been described by Dr. Murti, who was the former Surgeon General. It is a public health crisis. It was before COVID. 
right? In fact, later today or tomorrow, Adam, I am starting a social media movement and I'm going to call it hashtag ask an elder. And I'm going to put three questions because we can't do small talk with, with boomers and elders anymore because we can't ask, Hey, how are you? And what'd you do today? They're terrible. And they're watching TV. Like we've got to ask them interesting questions. Like what's your favorite memory from childhood? But like, this could be such an opportunity to re-engage with those older people, not on a surface level, but like on a deep level and each other. So Bronwyn, there are so many things I love about that. The elderly are literally a dying resource. And when they die, their stories die and we can't receive their riches. You're describing an atrophy process where they're just numbing out to television and they're feeling lonely too. And loneliness increases the likelihood of dementia by about 50%. Loneliness Loneliness increases the likelihood of dementia by 50%? Right. And what you're proposing would be a prescription against loneliness, and it would also benefit the younger generations with the hard-earned wisdom of these elders. Most traditional societies, if you look at Africa tribes, they value the stories of the elderly, and those traditions are carried on long after the elderly pass because those are so precious. We've lost so many elderly whose stories have gone with them, and they've they've been squandered. That's right. Quite frankly. That's so exactly what you're right. doing is a great solution. It also brings to mind... For everybody, that, yeah. 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 I love the idea of you taking a look at, well, what can I do here? Yeah. yeah. And that's yeah. an approach mindset versus an avoid mindset. Yes. And with the approach mindset of saying, hey, listen, I want to go out and do something right now versus the avoid mindset of I'm going to do nothing because everything sucks. That's right. And that's actually the, the, one of the main questions I wanted to ask you about is, you know, I, like you, I, right now I've never been busier than I am right now because I'm like a content making machine right now. I'm trying to make as many episodes as I can that help people just like you're doing with your clients. So I am blessed in this moment. It might change. I have purpose very meaningful purpose. And it is helping me to cope with what I imagine must feel like depression. And what is your advice for people that aren't in a help, like you and I are in the helping business. For people that aren't in the helping business that are, you know, maybe they're a bartender or a waiter or waitress or whatever, how do we manufacture purpose at a time like this? Because I got to imagine half of our psychological woes are because we're adrift. Great question. And I want to address something that kind of, I think, is precedes this all. Right now, a lot of people are going through what could be called an adjustment disorder. It's something that's described in the DSM at length. But when a crisis occurs, many of us will exhibit either anxiety or depression or both until the crisis remits. And this could be anything from physiological symptoms such as headaches, all the way to excessive worry and depressive feelings and the, and the desire to isolate. And so your, your question is timely. How can we find purpose? Yeah. One of the things that we can do is do an inventory of our life. Where have we found flow previously? Where have we found purpose and meaning? That kind of beautiful, yummy space between purpose and meaning. I'm using two circles. I'm trying to show a Venn diagram. Yeah, but yeah. In that spot between purpose and meaning, It could be playing a musical instrument and trying to get a little better every day. It could be reaching out to people who you love and deepening the relationship. It could be engaging in a writing project that has been long overdue. We've been given a sabbatical, essentially. And it's it's (laughs) It's one that's fraught with fear and a whole host of variables. It feels almost like a minefield in certain ways. But we have to deal with this one day at a time and find purpose within. Another option is to go online to the University of Pennsylvania offers a free 20-minute inventory that can really help you figure out what what are your areas of strengths? What are your, they call them values in action. And one of the things that these great positive psychologists have studied through a large group of different social scientists, historians, theologians, psychologists, anthropologists, what strengths, what values have been important throughout time, regardless of religion, regardless of culture, and you can find out where you fall on the 24. What is your top value Mm. and what are your least 
present values. Mm. It's a first choice test. It's kind of annoying to take. It only takes 20 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I don't like this question. (laughs) Exactly. Because oftentimes you're going to look at the question and say, well, actually both are true. Yeah. Just hang in there. Take, yep. Take, yep. take the fourth choice. The data that you'll glean from it is, is powerful. And what you can do is look at your top five values in action. Ask yourself, what might be a novel way to rock this value? Oh, that's great. Especially considering the constraints that are being imposed. Like, what can I do right yes. now yes. to really rock this value? So that after this point in time. I love the way Gavin Newsom described this. A lot of people are catastrophizing and understandably we have what's called a negative filter in our minds, which we'll probably be talking about later. That's helped us survive. If we ever hear the sounds of something that might be a threat, we determine that it must be deadly. Well, now, you know, it is potentially deadly and it is scary, but the negative filter can cause us to catastrophize. And what we need to be able to do is leave the part of the brain that is the fear center, also known as the amygdala, and Uh use our higher cortex and not allow the amygdala to override that. And And what's the easiest way to do that? How do we do that? Because that is the million dollar question. I was up at 2 a.m. this morning, insomnia, and my mom calls it the committee. The committee started to get into session and the catastrophizing. And you you know how your mind is just like a total it's like an impossible octopus of bad thoughts at 2 a.m. How how do you take control away from the amygdala? The first thing you do, believe it or not, is you notice it. You notice it. Okay. Okay. Oh my gosh. You witness it. You you name it. Say, okay, I'm doing that thing. I'm doing that thing. And by doing that, naming it, noticing it, you take some of the power away from that. Right. And you ask right. yourself, what can I do right now? Maybe you need to leave your bed because oftentimes the bed becomes a stimulus. Oh, no. That will, so you, would, you might need to just go into another room, watch something funny, do something different, write an email to a friend just saying, hey, I'm thinking of you. It's 2 a.m. and I can't quite fall asleep yet. I'm stroking my dog and that's amazing. I'm listening to some Enya because <laughs> I haven't listened to Enya in years. <laughs> but for some reason I feel myself drawn to Enya at the moment. Soothing. Soothing Soothing. at all costs, right? That makes so much sense though, because I remember when Sal and I were doing our remodel, he was working long hours as usual and the only time we got to really talk about things, and for any couple that's gone through remodel, you know what I mean when I say yes, talk exactly. about things. It's right. like fighting, bickering, whatever. And so it was constantly happening while I was in bed and he was climbing into bed. And I noticed this pattern. I was like, I am not bringing this energy to my bed. We are no longer doing this. We could talk in the morning. We could talk on the phone. We are not effing talking about this in the bed anymore. And it really helps. So you got me really, you you may have noticed I got really antsy here because all of the sleep experts say that there should be two things you do in the bed. Only two. Only two. And one of them is not quarreling. And one (laughs) of them is certainly not watching TV and certainly not watching activating TV. That's right. Oh my God. Okay. This is really crazy, but there's this part of me that wants to watch Outbreak or that wants to watch that Matt Damon movie, whatever the hell it's called, because there's this like morbid need to be like, if this gets really bad, what does it look like? And I'm like, Bronwyn, don't fucking do that to yourself. Correct. Do not. So that is one of my top recommendations right now. Yeah, yeah. Those movies are fiction and they feed the amygdala. Right. And then what happens is you look for something to corroborate it outside. Like where can I find, oh my gosh, that little piece of news that I just watched or that thing that that person said on social media who actually has no basis for saying it, well, their fears might be true. So don't watch Outbreak. It showed up (laughs) on my Netflix feed. It's funny. Just like, Oh my God, that is sick. Yes. So clearly it's trending. It's trending. Thanks, Netflix. (laughs) And I love Netflix. So override the desire to to rubberneck with something like that and go instead to comedy or something perhaps that's very humanizing, something that really brings you back to your humanity. Those really sweet, 
heartwarming things. You know what we did as a family last night, which is kind of a new tradition now that I think of it, is we watched this wonderful BBC production called Seven Worlds, One Planet. And it's one of those like David Attenborough like narrates it. It's so beautiful because with drone photography, they can capture footage you never would have caught. So you go to Africa and Australia and Asia and South America. We were like, dazzled. And because we're so confined, the big open spaces, the cinematic, you know, viewing of these like tiny lizards and giant, you know, animals. I mean, we were like, it was so nourishing to do as a family. But Adam, I have so many questions from people that have been literally blowing me up on Instagram. Can I ask you some of these questions? Absolutely. But before I do it, you do. Yes, finish your thought. I love watching that David Attenborough thing because it's expansive rather than contracting. Things that really expand you during this time of potentially feeling really tight. We don't want to feel tight in our muscles. No. Our muscles are tight. Go take a shower that will preferably a warm one that will warm you up and and your muscles need to relax. If you have the ability to do anything like yoga or things that will stretch you out or open you up during this time, do it by all means. Because the brain listens to the body. And one of my favorite axioms is I don't sing because I'm happy. I, I'm happy because I sing. Oh. So behavior precedes the feeling. So if you can take the shower, you'll feel a little bit more open. If you can do the yoga, you'll feel a little bit more open. If you can watch the comedy, you'll feel a little bit more open. And just watching David Attenborough oh. will make you feel more open. So good. Great call. It's so good. And actually, one of the things I, I am so grateful for is going into 2020, Adam, we all had these like, oh my God, it's a new decade. Meanwhile, 2020 is like, LOL. <laughs> I'm going to throw some shit at you this year you had never had. But one of the things I did was I locked in a daily streaming workout. And my God, Adam, it is saving me right now. I've been doing it with awesome. fail, without fail. It's, yeah. And you're creating, you're creating a new habit during this time, during the sabbatical. And you're also probably boosting your immune system while you're for doing sure. that by exercising. And there's an interesting dynamic too, especially for women. I don't know about for men, but you know, I grew up in Southern California where like, if you didn't have an eating disorder, you weren't trying hard enough. You know what I mean? So, so exercise, sure. exercise had always been loaded for me because it's like, well, why am I exercising? You know, if you really, if I'm really honest with myself, I exercise so that I look good, which is fine, but it's not a motivator that gets you through tough times. Now I'm exercising because I need to stay well. I need to stay out of the hospital. I need to stay well for my family. And I find that the reservoirs of strength are so much deeper when the, sh- the focus of the exercise is wellness versus superficialness. And I hate to admit that I feel that way, but that, you know, shit, I'm a product of my environment. So one of my all-time favorite authors is Dan Pink, who talks extensively oh. about motivation, right? Great, great, great. I have great such a crush on him. He's so oh, funny. And he's, he's so smart. He describes himself as the 10% of his law school class that made the upper 90% possible. Possible. Uh, it's the best. When he went to Yale, he's very smart and he's no longer serving as a lawyer. But one of the things that he describes in his book is the difference between intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. Doing it for the sake of health and well-being versus doing it for just external looks. Doing it for the intrinsic purpose is far more motivating than just doing it look good. 100%. Okay, so questions. I'm going to start with, do you like my Post-it notes? I love your Post-it notes. I mean, they're pink. They're pink. pink. On Thursdays, we use pink. I'm going to tape up here. Okay, so one thing that is heartbreaking to consider, I am an introvert. I have been work. actually, technically, I'm an ambivert, but I've been working from home by myself for 18 years. I love this. This is no problem for me. But for the extroverts, this is really, really soul crushing. And actually, I was just talking with Sal, my husband, last night. And we were talking about how he's like, I was like, God, how are you coping with working from home? He's like, oh, I'm doing okay because you guys are all here. Adam, what can extroverts who aren't surrounded by family and friends in their home, who don't have roommates, how can they get through this? What can they do to shore up their energy levels and their positivity? Because this has got to be really tough on them. First thing they need to do is write a list of all of the people they love and who make them feel taller after an interaction. Ooh, say more about that. I found an entire list of all of those people. Yes. And just by doing that, first of all, increases your sense of something called perceived support. This is something well documented in a book called Super Survivors by a colleague of mine. 
And just the idea that you have these people in your corner is step one. Step two is look at that list. Ask yourself, who could I call on a given day by phone just to say I love you? You've heard me say I just called to say I love you. Yeah. Do it. Nobody does that. But it has to be done. And this is a great time, again, to incubate new behaviors. This is particularly so for men who are unlikely to ask for directions or even admit that they're lonely because admitting you're lonely, there's almost such a social stigma around admitting you're lonely. And And, and uh, also, I feel like the... Sorry, I'm trying to get rid of that phrase. I feel like it seems to me that not only is there a social stigma around loneliness, men aren't trained to talk in ways that lead to intimacy. Women get off the phone. We know how the marriage is. We know how the kids are doing. We know the superficial stuff, but we also know a lot of the deep stuff. I'll ask Sal about his best friend and something going on with him. would be like, oh, we never got to that. I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> how did you not talk about how that? How did you not topic? talk about that? Like, oh. So guys need to exercise their vulnerability muscles. And this is a great opportunity to really watch a Brene Brown video and, 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 and rock that skill set because guys yes. need it too. I work with, my, I mean, 80% of my, of my office is filled with really high-achieving, high-functioning men who have never allowed themselves to be vulnerable or who may have in varying degrees. And it's such healing work for them. Yeah. So making a list asking yourself who's good on this list in terms of like, who can I talk to who would really, really give me something and who I can give to too. Love that. Asking yourself, what would be creative? What would be new? Do I want to open a beer with this person and have a talk? Do I want to have coffee? Do I want to do a board game? Do I want to even engage in something like improv work with this person? (laughs) That would be really kind of new and different. Oh, over Zoom? Over Zoom. Do I want to do Amazing. Do I want to jam on the guitar? What what is it that we can do together that'll make things feel a little bit less weird? And I'm going to be a big big advocate for the virtual hug. How does it work, Adam? We're, okay. For those listening, I, it, we're on Zoom doing a virtual work in hug. progress. But hey, Bronwyn, it's so great to see you. I'm <laughs> so giving you a virtual <laughs> hug. Can you feel me? I can feel you like crazy. Right. I mean, we're we're time buds. So, oh my god, that's we, we've, so we've awesome. Clocked enough, we've clocked enough hours, so the rapport yeah. is there, and the mirror neurons in my brain are just like, woo, 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 woo. Yeah. okay, I'm with Bronwyn. This is great. Yes, and yes. it's not as good as being in person, and it will also make being in person at the end of this point <sighs> in time far more precious. My wife asked the most beautiful question at fri- on our Friday night dinner. It just, it just knocked my socks off. She said, what are you now grateful for that you took for granted previously? Oh and my answer was my God. doing annoying errands on a Sunday oh. that I didn't want to do. Totally. Oh my God. That question, Adam, question. You've, got, you've got to post that on social media. That is a question that is such a great conversation starter for all of us right now. I think that could be huge. And this is my favorite thing about social media right now is there are all these neat little threads that are getting pushed out. Like a friend of mine, Lisa Jacobs, who runs the joint joint youth ministry in San Jose for teenagers. She posted something like three questions and, you know, comment with your answers. And they were interesting questions. I think that is how we're going to survive this thing is by asking questions like that. Like, okay. So I'm going to, I want to, I want to, I want (laughs) to, Build on that idea because that's such a good one. So often we get off the phone and we've talked about either technology, world events, or recent acquisitions like like the like the house and how we've redone the kitchen. Yeah. Do did we really exchange meaningful content? No. Two criteria. Very simple. Just talk about what's good and what's bad, what hurts and what's feeling great. Oh, that's so good. Just just the simple prompts before you get on the phone saying, "Hey, I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about both of these emotional experiences and I'm going to exchange them and I'm going to hear them and I'm going to be a great listener." I'm not going <gasps> to I love that. In fact, I have a 6:30 happy hour tomorrow night with the Blanches, my two best friends. I love Blanche. You've told you me know, about I've you met, know. I met, I met one of the Blanches' husbands, but I've never met either Blanche. Oh, that's right. That's right. You met Jeremiah. That's right. I oh did. My God, that's at so Bebo's. Funny. That is, of course, everything happens at Bebo's. Everything happens at Bebo's. Um, but I'm going to start off our virtual happy hour with 
what's good and what's bad, what feels good and what hurts. And actually, before I go to bed, I've been doing exactly that in my journal. What am I proud of from today and what hurt from today? I know that if all of us start a journal practice right now during these days, like love oh. in the time of cholera, love in the time of COVID, we're it. going to have such a moving account of humanity re- it. rediscovering itself. In fact, you know, Adam, I was talking, I think it was somebody over Instagram, Whitney, my friend Whitney over Instagram was, we were kind of feeling sorry for ourselves. And she said, you know, if you start to feel sorry for yourself, I want you to think of the Holocaust. I want you to think about those people. And that made me think of Anne Frank. And that made me think of isolation and what real isolation can be and how the simple act of journaling kept that little girl. It makes me cry just thinking about it. I kept that little girl alive. And I think that is a tool we should all be using just to check in with our sadness, with our grief in a journal. I think it would be a powerful record of our humanity right now. It's so important to release that information that's holding us. It, it may decrease the likelihood of you waking up at 2 a.m. because it's already been released. Oh, that is so true. It's like my husband, Sal, wakes up with a really stiff back every night. And he's like, I know it's my subconscious because my his conscious mind is like, we got this. We got plenty of food. We've got each other. Right. It's going to be okay. But his subcon- all of our subconscious minds are amygdala parties, right? Amygdala parties. So what's an evening ritual, Adam, that we can do that will tell the amygdala, you know what, honey, listen, we need to sleep tonight and I need you to shut the fuck up. What's an evening wind down? All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. So rituals are not necessarily religious. They can be very sacred nonetheless. You can tell your brain, prime your brain, it's time for sleep. And there are several ways that you can engage the senses. You can light a particular beautiful smelling candle or incense. You can play a particular kind of music that lets you know it's time for sleep. It's a cue. It's like a habit cue, right? Cues and exactly. There are cues, like primes, whatever you want to call them. Maybe you take a bath to relax your muscles before sleep with some magnesium salts. What are they called again? (laughs) Epsom salts. Yeah. Um, No, I feel you. Maybe you journal before bed. But engage the senses so that the brain knows, okay, this is a separation from the day, from the activities that we've been doing all day. This is a Sabbath today, and I'm going to sleep. I love that. I love that. Okay, I have to get back to these questions because I feel like I am not. <laughs> oh, by the way, they're, and they're just a whole host of things you don't want to do before sleep. Of course, you don't want to go on social media you or the news, the news, right? Watch just the right amount of news every day, but not too much, and only get your news from really credible sources. Yeah, I agree. Only get information about COVID from really credible sources. I agree. I totally agree with you. It's In fact, I'm trying to... Now that we're on full quarantine, I almost don't need to check the news because I can, like, what else can I do? Right. I cannot leave my house and I'm already doing that. So I don't need to look at it. So I'm really only trying to look at the news in the evening in like four to four 30 is my, I give myself from four to four 30 to totally freak out. Right. Otherwise, you know, okay. Couple more questions. I had a question from a doctor who's on the front lines oh, and she said, wow. please ask Adam how to cope with feelings of overwhelm. So this is really, really hard. The first step, as I mentioned before, is just noticing that she has it. That's good. And then asking herself, how can I kick ass here? And how can I take this once? Truly, I know it sounds cliche, but one step at a time. She may feel like it's an entire avalanche coming at her. Easy to say and really hard to do. But these cliches have a place because they're true. Taking one step at a time, slowing things down in her mind, looking at this and understanding what heroic action she is taking and seeing herself in the greater context yeah. so that she reala- recognizes that what she's doing is good and right, assuming it's aligned with her values and her strengths and asking herself what's important about this work yeah. as she goes along. 
Yeah. So reconnecting with the deeper purpose of the work. Because, and, and I think that's true for all of us because the, the doctors, the nurses, the people in caring positions are front lines. But anybody who's raising kids right now, it's so brutal and it's so overwhelming. I love that idea of just what is the next right thing. What is the most heroic thing I can do? Or even like getting it out of heroism, like just literally what is the next thing and how do I bring all of my attention to whatever that thing is, right? You got it. And there's a few other things. I yeah. actually used to teach a uh, course on physician burnout too. For a, it was a CME course that I taught with a physician friend of mine. One of the most important things that physicians can do is have a peer support group to talk about stuff as it's going on and really, really help each other focus in on what's going on. Meditate together can help. Meditation can really slow things down. Even if you don't think of yourself as a meditator, a very easy way to meditate is by thinking of a single word that you love Mm. and noticing when other thoughts come in and allowing yourself to release those thoughts and refocusing. You may think, oh my gosh, I'm a crappy meditator because every time I try to do it, I'm thinking about other things. Well, think of it as a push-up by merely coming back to the word or the breathing or however you want to do the meditation, it will help bolster a part of the prefrontal cortex. It's been shown in functional MRIs that our brains become stronger through meditation. And that's actually funny when people tell me, oh, I don't meditate because every time I meditate, I just get thoughts. I'm like, that's meditating. That's meditating. But literally, that's, that is it. All you do is sit there, notice the thought, let it go. Notice the thought, let it go. And eventually the traffic slows down a little bit. You got it. Lucky. But it's not that we meditate to hit this place where we stop thinking. It's not possible unless you're like one of those monks that lives and has no kids and lives in a freaking hut somewhere. All meditation is, is getting some space between ourselves and our thoughts, right? Because there's a little bit of gap between one car and the next, right? Right. So that, that is meditating. And I'm Captain Monkey Mind and meditation <laughs> did not come easy to me. And yeah. it took several, several attempts for me to really establish a practice. And I'm far better at attending to complex issues and overwhelm when I meditate. Oh, she God, also yes. just be attending to the basics. Is she hydrating enough herself? Physicians are horrible often at self-care. Is she eating the right foods that really supercharges her? Is she getting enough sleep? Is she connecting with the people in her life who matter to her? Is she listening to comedy? Yeah, is she she allowing herself a true hiatus from the onslaught? And that will help her with the overwhelm and all that. I love that. I love that. And that's good advice for all of us. And but just please let her know that, you know, I'm just thinking about her right now and just and sitting in profound appreciation of what she's doing. I mean this is just heroism. Heroism is hard. It is hard. It is absolutely hard. And I keep thinking, you know how I'm such a Lord of the Rings nerd. I mean, everything, oh, yeah. everything always goes back to Frodo and Sam. But I think of that as moment, when, right? As it should, because it's the ultimate like metaphor. But I it's remember that moment when Frodo's sitting with Gandalf and he's like, I wish the ring had never come to me. And Gandalf says, so do all who live to see oh, such times. But all we can do is the best we can with the time we are given. Something like that. But that is literally like, I'm like channeling Frodo whenever I hit overwhelm. It's like, I didn't choose this. None of us chose this, but we can't choose how we respond and react. Okay. I love it. And the other thing to mention is I was looking up with my son, the best selling fiction of all time. And it's sure enough, Lord of the Rings. I mean, right below it, Harry Potter's, but Lord of the Rings really resonates it's the best book ever. And anybody that doesn't agree with me, <laughs> I will fight them with my, with my sword that senses orcs. So, okay. Okay, another question, and this is totally random, but we're all really fascinated by this toilet paper craze, Adam. Right. Why the fuck are people buying toilet paper in bulk? The negative filter and scarcity mentality. So the negative filter has kept us alive for a long time. It's allowed us to fight off warring tribes. It allows us to prepare for famine. It's allowed us to really seek out catastrophes and how to avoid them for the last two, several million years. Right. And given that the human brain has not changed in the last, say, 40,000 years, but our circumstances have changed vastly, 
our brains are not up to date with what is today. Our poor they forget brains. that we are all in this together. And it comes to an everyone out for themselves mentality. There's scarcity abound. And I've been reading about this. Hurry up and just get as much toilet paper as you can. The prices for Purell are, you know, being, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. It's um, but but it starts so early. Like I was sitting at dinner the other night, and my daughter, one of my daughters, was like, "Mom, we're almost out of guava juice," and I'm like, "Well, I just bought the guava juice. Like going to the store is kind of a pain in the ass now." And she's like, "Why don't you buy two? And I said, "Because you know, honey." I'm not the only person who needs guava juice right now. Like we've got to be good to each other. And she goes, mom, it's every man for himself right now. You need to get back to the store and buy three. And I was like, my mantra in this house is we live in an abundant universe. I say it 50 times a day. And yet that wiring, that evolutionary human wiring is to be like, grab the fucking toilet paper and do it now. (laughs) It takes a really powerful control alt delete function to override our systems programming, which is to go into that mentality. And I really applaud what you're doing. I've seen, you know, I used to do the AIDS ride, which is a bike ride from SF to LA every year. And we had an all in it together mentality. Everybody helped everybody. There was the number one rule was kindness, kindness, kindness all the time. And that was humans at their best. So right now we have the opportunity to be at our best. That's it. And it's very hard to override our wiring and it's essential that we do and that we post that on Facebook. So that message gets out. I love that. I love that. Kindness, kindness, kindness. Okay. Couple more. And then I'm going to let you go. Cause I could do this all day. I got a ton of questions and this might be outside of your purview. So don't, don't feel like you have to answer this, well, you know. but a lot of people asked about children. How much should we tell them? How do we help them close the social distance gap? How do we support our kids right now? Especially the kids that are just like, I have an eighth grader who was supposed to graduate this year. She is going to graduate, but it's not going to be a ceremony. Or, you know, the high school seniors or the college that like, it's so brutal. Okay. So let's actually use your eighth grader as an example. I mean, how heartbreaking. You're crying just thinking about the fact that she doesn't get to have a legitimate ceremony. And part of a ritual or part of a rite of passage, I should say, is that a rite of passage involves a challenge and a ritual and witnesses. And she is going to have fewer witnesses and it will be a different ritual. So what you're going to want to do is take a look at her grief and really allow her to express it. That would be the first thing I would do. How she wished it could have gone and what she's missing out on, maybe some of the anger that she's feeling, some of the sadness, and really just allowing her to be with it and and really affirming that and not suggesting that she think otherwise. So our instinct to be like, come on, your grandparents and great-grandparents were in a war. Don't don't give me this sad story. No, we have to let them lean into their grief. This is real. Yeah. It's a loss. Allow them to really talk about it and really affirm it. Then talk about how can we create a family ritual, a graduation that is meaningful. And one of the things that you could do is engage Sal and your other children to talk about how you've seen your daughter evolve over her middle school years, what you know she's learned, the friends she's had who have taught her socially, the academics that is that have bolstered her brain in that way. Oh and, my God. I'm, for those who can't see me, because I, <laughs> the Zoom people will see this, I am literally like <laughs> fully crying. <laughs> this is great. Keep going, Adam. And then talk about your hopes for how high school will be and ask her to write about what she's, what has she gained during her middle school years? If she were giving the valedictorian speech to your family, what would it include? And ask her to, and you can help her write it. You're, you're pretty good at speech writing. And you can help her birth that if she's a little resistant at first. Ultimately, it will be worthwhile. And she can deliver the speech to your family. And she can also do it via Zooms to have more witnesses yeah. for this virtual graduation where she is the valedictorian in this house. And she also gets to talk about her intentions for high school. And you and Sal can also talk about your wishes for how high school will go and beyond. That's and right. Make this into something beautiful that will be 
profoundly different from what would have happened had things occurred as they ordinarily do. And there may be something beautiful to grow here too. Yeah. It actually reminds me when Sal and I were in Sicily this past summer, it was our 15th wedding uh, anniversary. Wow. And we honeymooned in Sicily. So it was really special. So we told the kids, the three kids, we said, you guys are going to renew our vows for us. And <sighs> Stella, you're in charge of the actual vows. Maddie, you tell your favorite story and Luca, you tell us something that you're, that you like about our marriage or something like that. And so we went to this little church that was completely empty in the middle of nowhere in Sal's, you know, mountain town, his father's mountain town. We had to drive, drive, drive up, up, up. And at the top, there was this empty church and there had been a wedding the day before. And so the place was full of flowers magically. Wow. I mean, unbelievable. I know. And so Sal, it was Sal, the kids and I, and my mom, she was the recorder, the documenter. And the kids were so cute. The stories they told were so cute. And then Stella, it was Stella's turn to do the vows. And she's like, all right, mom, listen, dad's really tightly wrapped. He's super OCD. He's kind of a pain in the butt. Do you still want to do this with him? And I was like, I do. And she's (laughs) like, dad, mom's kind of a scatterbrain basket case. She forgets stuff a lot. You know, she's kind of a mess. You still want to do this? He's like, I do. (laughs) And it was such a hilarious moment because that's what marriage is. Like, this guy's a basket case. This woman's a basket case. Are you still in? And it was the cutest ceremony. So we've got a little bit of a precedent set there that I can maybe reimagine for some kind of graduation thing. I think that's really, really smart, Adam. And we can let our kids be angry and sad and grief stricken. I love that. I think that's powerful advice. Ask them, what would you like to do during this time? Like what might be fun? What might be meaningful? Would it be baking cookies with mom on the regular basis? Would it be playing music together? Would it be playing certain types of board games, watching funny movies together, but not just watching funny movies because after a while that becomes rather passive, but sharing laughter is, is great. I love that you doubled down, by the way, in Sicily together, <laughs> you and Sal. Uh, and, and so there's a precedent for you to have a, have a, a ritual a ceremony. So I love design, it. design this with Stella, have her really take a look at what would be the best option given the constraints right. that have been imposed upon us. Right. I love it. Another question that came up, Adam, was how much should I share with my child? You know, there's new information coming out constantly. My perception is that, at least in my house, the kids are like, this thing's fine. It won't affect us. It won't affect you guys. So whatever. That's kind of the vibe among the young. So I haven't been worried about... In fact, I feel like I need to share more because I don't think they're taking it seriously enough. But for those who have kids that are really sensitive or really anxious, how much is too much? Well, you need to ask yourself in the greater context, what will this information do? Is this going to help or harm? Mm, given my good. child's level of development and given my child's sensitivities and given the greater goal, which is we need to stay free of yeah. this virus. Yeah. Yeah. Will this help or will this harm? Right. It's a fairly binary question and it works. Yeah. You know your child better than anybody else. And even though your child may be nearly the same age as my child, they may have different, different levels of sensitivities or ability to really wrap their minds around something. But from a triage perspective, the only thing that really matters right now is, can I keep my children safe? Oh, it's so true. It's so and, true. And how do I keep our elders safe? And I mean, by the way, that safe means, right now, our, our elders safe. And safe means physically and emotionally. And now is an okay time to even begin therapy it can be done via video. I've been oh, doing it that's all week. a great and point. As a question, Adam, and this is kind of a plug, but kind of not, are you taking new clients right now? Absolutely. Okay. So everybody out there, Dr. Adam Dorsey in the Hizzle has the ability to take on a few more people. Also, I'm going to get for you a good resource for kids, a therapist for children, for people who need it. And I'll post that with the show notes. One last question, and then I swear to God, we're done. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. We're almost at an hour. <laughs> One hour with Bronwyn. Wow, really? Gosh, yeah. It always goes by so quickly with I you, know, Bronwyn. I know. I feel, like, I feel like I'm having so many of my connection needs met right now. It's so awesome, which actually leads me to my final question, which is this. 
spouses are in the trenches together right now, in the foxhole, proverbially. And there's usually one of us who, you know, being in the trenches and being in like, holy shit, command and control, let's make sure we've got enough groceries and that we're keeping our people safe. That is not conducive to intimacy, right? Like I'm not like daydreaming about mad, passionate lovemaking right now. Whereas I feel like men can be like, oh, you want to you go hit it real quick? Let's do it. Sal and I have this incredible relationship and there's so many people out there that do too. How do we make sure things don't get too transactional? All right. So I do believe in <laughs> a basic idea for marriage and I believe in keep it hot. <laughs> Hashtag keep it hot. And it's really, really hard when the last interaction you've had has been around homework or yes. did they brush their teeth or all these really boring, mundane tasks that are not sexy. Totally. Parents need time to connect sexually. Yeah. Depending on their drive, the frequency is highly variable. And depending on their needs, the degree of connection is highly variable. But on average, most people who have sexual impulses and feelings need to have that in the context of marriage. And what I recommend and what Esther Perel also recommends Ooh, love her. Love is, her. so it comes with some authority behind it, is making a date for the bedroom for a particular time. Usually the first one to five minutes feels really forced and fake, but yeah. somewhere around minute six, it's like, oh yeah, I remember. This is right. pretty awesome. And you fall into the greatness of what is the connection. And, it's, and, the, and the connection has a long half-life afterwards between couples. Does. It really you know, does. It, it's so important. I mean, basically, you're looking at the hierarchy of needs. For those of you who took Psych 101, you may remember that Maslow wrote his idea of our base needs, which are shelter and food. And, and as you ascend this triangle, it goes all the way up to something called self-actualization, which is... Mm-hmm. But in the middle, we, need, we do need physical connection. And when our base needs feel, when we feel like we're so much in fight or flight, part of our nervous system is called the sympathetic nervous system. It's very active rather than our parasympathetic nervous system, which is our relaxation response, which comes about from, you know, taking a bath or being sexual or meditating. It's hard to exit the sympathetic state of fight or flight. And just by reconnecting and just maybe even by having a ritual of saying, some types of words, some types of phrases between couples to remind yourselves, oh, wait, this is awesome. We are awesome. In spite of all of the stuff that's going on outside our bedroom right now, we are awesome. I love that. I love that too. I'm just realizing that's part of the problem is there isn't any opportunity for a parasympathetic cue right now because, you know, Sal's super busy. I'm super busy. You're super busy. We're all crazy busy trying to adjust to this new world. And there aren't those gaps for like, oh, I'm just going to put my feet up right now. At least there haven't been for me. I I have yet to experience this newfound time. (laughs) I keep hearing we're going to have that we need that like little cue, like whether it's, you know, like taking a bath before something that just calms, uh, pulls us out of triage mode, settles us down and then attempt intimacy, whether that's conversation or physical. I love that. I think that's really, really powerful. Yeah. I I think that we all need to have ideally a one word mantra that can soften us when we're in the midst of all of this intensity. And it could even just be soften. It could be connect. I like the word connect a lot. Soften, (sighs) soften, soften soften your eyes, soften your face. And remind yourself of who this person really is, in spite of the fact that you may have just been in a bit of a fight because tensions are rising. And because you're in such close proximity, it's very important to be clear about your needs for space, about your needs for, and to to be very kind and assertive. And I, I, I basically look at assertiveness as having at least three components and they all sound like the letter K, even though they have different letters, that you should be clear about what you need. Uh-huh. You should be concise and most importantly, kind as you, uh-huh. as you advocate for yourself. If you're not clear, if you just basically say, I, I need you to give me more space, that, that doesn't make any, what does that mean? So Maybe in the hours of 10 and 12, 10 a.m. and 12 p.m., I just need some of, I just need to be left alone during this time. That's my, that's my dark time. 
Yeah. That's clear and concise. And, and I will be, and the kindest part is, and I will be far more available to you after that time. That's beautiful. I love that. In fact, on my Instagram story this morning, I just recommended that everyone read Nonviolent Communication. Oh, fabulous. Rosenberg. When I read that, I was probably 28 or 29. And I don't think Sal and I would be married right now. I don't think we would have gone forward in our relationship had I not learned those strategies and built a relationship on that foundation. I mean, it's game-changing. Any other books that like, for people that are like, you know what my purpose is going to be during this quarantine? I'm going to read all the self-help books I should have read but didn't have time for. Any like that pop to mind that are like, dude, you got to have this one. If you had any, if you even saw my bookshelf and how often I'm giving out bibliotherapy to my clients, or I call them my people, as you know, I don't call them patients. I don't call them clients. I call them people because I love that. My people. I am a huge advocate of positive psychology. So anything from that realm, happier by Tal Ben-Shahar, great. The Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker are probably my two most frequently given out books. <laughs> Stumbling Upon Happiness is another fun book. It's not as good at getting you primed for happiness, but it kind of explains the concept by Dan Gilbert out of Harvard. Love that book too. By the way, the aforementioned books by both Tal Ben-Shahar and Sean Aker are really based on Tal Ben-Shahar's work. The most popular courses in Harvard's history have been basically looking at happiness under the microscope. So that's been the most exciting. That's so cool. Happiness really is a choice. It does take diligent effort. I love Peak by Anders Ericsson out of Carnegie Mellon, which talks about diligent practice. And I love relationship books. There's so many, a a great many of those. Harville Hendrick wrote one of, you know, wrote a tome that I think is one of the most important books that has ever been written. That's Oprah, awesome. Oprah agrees. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that, that's like the Bible, right? And yeah, in, I in, a weekend in, with him and he's just, he's, he's the real deal. That's awesome. I love when I hear that because sometimes people come back from those retreats with these amazing authors and they're like, not the way I thought it was going to be. So it's nice to hear when that's true. But I will put all of the links to these resources in the show notes. And I want to just close, Adam, by saying I'm so grateful for your work. I'm so grateful for your friendship. You've been such a blessing to me since the early days of our dog park experiences. Dog park. (laughs) How we met. And I I thank God that our families intersected in a way that has led to this great friendship. And I bless you guys. And, you know, thank you for this time. It's been a total pleasure. Always is. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Big, big virtual hugs. Big virtual hug. Mwah.